This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. Register now at healthed.com.au. The patient informs you that he has been discharged with a stoma or a bag. What should we be looking for? What is normal or expected? What are the common complications? What are regarded as emergencies? Where do patients get future supplies from? How do we help the patients live their lives to the fullest? Find out what a stomal therapy nurse does and why an early referral to one is essential for the patient. In this podcast, I will be speaking to Julia Kitcher. Julia, tell us about yourself. Hi, David. Yes, um, I originally trained as a registered nurse in in the UK and a couple of years later came to Australia uh, where I worked as a surgical nurse and then um, finally found my forte in stomal therapy. And I've been doing this for over 20 years now. Julia, stoma is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because I can remember as a GP, uh, say a patient turns up and says, Dr. Lim, I've got a stoma and my mind kind of goes a little bit blank. So maybe you can take us through, Julia, what should a GP be thinking about when a patient presents with a new stoma? Yes, well, sometimes when patients present with a new stoma, they don't actually know the proper terminology themselves. They're still learning about what's happened to their body and often they're in quite shock over the, for the first few weeks. And we try and teach people about what sort of stoma they have so they can articulate this important information, but often they find it very difficult. Um, so I guess you really want to know what sort of stoma they have, whether they have an ileostomy, a colostomy or an ileal conduit. Um, they are, these are the most common kinds of stomas. But of course, then there's always the most more complicated patient that has had lots of other surgery and might end up having something like a jejunostomy, which is way more complex and will need a lot more monitoring. So the type of stoma to understand what they have and then what to expect from that stoma. So what would you expect from a colostomy and how would you expect it to function and to understand what is normal and what is not normal so that when the patient tells you something, you can understand if that's expected or not. Already I have a problem, Julia. You just mentioned the top three most common ones, the ileostomy, the colostomy and the ileal conduit. And I can't even really tell the difference between the ileal conduit and the ileostomy. So how can I understand how should they function if I don't even know what they are? You can ask the patient because, of course, if they've had their stoma a long time, they are the expert in their own stoma and their care um, with this. Um, But if they're fairly new, 
you would I would if people ring me and sometimes I have people ring me out of the blue I don't know them from Mara soap I will say to them what is coming out into out of your stoma is it urine or feces and then I will ask them the side of their abdomen is it the left for a colostomy or is it the right for an ileostomy and that would help me understand what part of the intestine it's from because as we know some patients present and say to us I've had all of my bowel removed and we know that's not correct but we just need to to decide and we'll try and work out what that means for them and what it means for how we're going to look after them. So generally a colostomy is on the left side of the abdomen an ileostomy and an ileal conduit is on the right um, and with an ileal conduit of course it would be draining urine. And the ileal conduit is joining what to the outside world? So commonly when people have an ileal conduit they have their bladder removed and a section of their small intestine uses a conduit for the ureters to be attached to. That's brought out to the outside of the body and it looks like an ileostomy, but it drains urine. Okay. Some patients who have an ileal conduit still have their bladder and it's just done as a diversion for a different reason. So, but generally more often than not, they have had their bladder removed. Amazing, isn't it? Simple things like that and suddenly there's clarity. <laughs> so, okay, now I know whether or not it's an ileostomy or a colostomy, and I expect I know what should be coming out of it. What else should I be thinking with that patient sitting in front of me? I think some of the key aspects are, is the stoma functioning normally? You know, is, it, is what's coming out expected? And then what are we going to do about the fact that that is either too much or not enough? So either with a colostomy, do they have constipation or are having diarrhea and maybe they have an infection? With an ileostomy, are they having too much come out? And we need to look at what their electrolytes are doing. Or with an ileostomy, having not enough come out and maybe they have an obstruction and they're vomiting and they don't feel well. Hopefully these people will go to hospital, but not always. You've actually made two really important points there, because what you're really saying is, David, if they're actually losing fluid, really be very mindful this, that you've got not just to think about fluid, but the electrolytes, uh, because they lose both together. And of course, uh, we will not know unless we actually do some tests. Are there particularly things we should be worried about? I mean, is it just potassium and, and, and sodium? What else do we look for in a patient who might have a little bit too much coming from the ileostomy? Um, well, I have a conversation around them about what is normal for them and whether they take medication. Sometimes people leave hospital and they have gastrostop or loperamide um, and they use that to help manage their ileostomy output. When they get home, this may change. They may decide they don't need it anymore or they need more or less. And often we will help them titrate that. Okay. They can fall off the perch very quickly when they stop unexpectedly or the GP doesn't understand that this needs to be continued. And this is a longer term medication that will help keep them well. And it can be as simple as the fact that they've forgotten or they've stopped taking them or they've run out. So that's a very important point for me now is that if my patient has an ileostomy, they will be on gastrostop indefinitely. Sometimes. Sometimes they need to take it if they're having chemotherapy, that anything that alters their output and increases the volume, we will use gastrostop to help them manage that and keep it within normal amounts so they don't end up in hospital with dehydration. Julia, what's a normal amount? Um, normal amount is between six and 800 mils. Anything over one litre is considered a high output. And this is where they're at risk of dehydration and may need ongoing, more closer monitoring when they're discharged home. And the patients are taught to um, measure how much output they have each day? 
In hospital, we measure all the time, the whole admission, and we explain that to them. If they have had a high output and are going home on gastro stop, they get information around what to do and how to monitor. Mm -hmm. Because of course, they don't know what normal is. They've had never had a normal output. For people that have always had a normal output in hospital, we still provide education and written information um, for them to take home around how to manage an altering stoma output if it changes. Great. And as you said, the patient now being experienced will know roughly how much is right. Yes. And for an ileostomy, I might say to them, it's normal to empty your bag three or four times a day and maybe once at night. If they say to me, I say, if you're emptying your bags 10 times a day, then you need to start to be a little bit more on alert for your electrolytes and your hydration and looking mm -hmm. at your urine and all of those things and how you're feeling and, you know, just tuning in with your body a bit more if that changes. Are there other micronutrients that can be lost? Because we know that the allium is pretty important for absorption. It depends on what sort of surgery they've had. But if they've just had a normal, like an end ileostomy um, at the end of their small intestine, really it's just electrolytes we're looking at. They will have weight loss if they've had a period of high output. But we should see that stabilizing once they're home and then they should be able to regain their weight. But of course, if that does become an issue, then a dietitian is really important to be involved as a member of the team. Okay, now let's just say that uh, it all looks okay and the output looks fine. The patient's pretty happy with what they've got, not happy, but okay with it. Are there other things that GPs should now think about and look at apart from the stoma itself? Um, so commonly people present with skin problems. Unfortunately, despite modern advances with technology and with skin barriers, they do experience skin problems. They don't know how to identify and what to report. So as we know with people, they can under-report things and they can over-report what is happening um, and they don't know what's significant. So even again, though they've received education, they can. Uh, there's a lot of information and they forget a lot of things. So um, skin is really important because of course, if the skin barrier doesn't adhere to the skin, it's extremely traumatic. Um, and sometimes there's some really easy things we can do to fix the skin and help the patient. And that's where we need to be contacted. The use of creams and ointments, it does not work because it affects the adhesion of the products. So we need to make sure we're using the appropriate products or maybe a change of product or pinpointing what the problem is, whether it is an infection or whether it is a dermatitis just for some, from some leakage. And we can obviously see that because the skin is red, looks unwell, or there's a discharge. Is that right? Yes, yes. And we need to look to see if there's if it's a generalized redness, if it is an imprint of the skin barrier, clearly then it's an allergy. But if it's something more like a fecal dermatitis, we can manage that. Or whether it's something like a folliculitis um, and obviously more serious, if it's a cellulitis, then we would be saying see your GP and hopefully they would follow through with that um, as well. Um, so skin problems are common, unfortunately. Some people never get any, excuse me, other people are very prone to issues with their skin or they're very concerned around that. Um, so skin assessment is important. The other thing I want to mention about skin is um, about ulcers. Some people will get ulcers for different reasons, especially if they've had conditions such as inflammatory bowel conditions, maybe Crohn's. We want to make sure there's no breaks in the skin or ulcers happening. People can develop a pyoderma gangrenosum under, on their peristomal skin. So observation and assessment of that is important and we will help manage that. We can work with you guys to do that as well. Uh, Julie, it's very important for me to hear what you said about creams in the sense that a lot of GPs, myself included, if I see a dermatitis, the initial reaction is, oh, they need some cortisone cream. So what is your recommendation to all creams from doctors? So again, 
what should we not do and what can we do apart from reaching out to a stomal therapy nurse? So if they have a fecal dermatitis, so this, the, uh, the stool has leaked underneath the appliance and caused erosion of the skin, um, then a, a cream won't fix that. It will affect the adhesion and the leakage continues. So they need to see their stoma nurse for reassessment. So a cream won't fix a fecal dermatitis. They need a review for their appliance fit or they need maybe even to look at what their output is. Because of course, if their output is more watery, it's more likely to leak under the appliance if the fit isn't good. But if you can't get to see someone soon, what we recommend is to really wash the skin just with water only and make sure that they're not using too many other things on their skin that might affect the adhesion. Pat the skin dry and they can use some stoma powder, which most people have. If they don't have this, and I've had the calls on a Friday afternoon and the patient doesn't have anything to use, I've asked them to use corn flour on their skin, just to dust it on, dust it off and try the skin barrier then. That will help with the moisture that you get from the erosion of the skin. Another thing they can use that they can buy at the supermarket is pseudo cream. It is the one and only cream I would recommend under a skin barrier. We ask the patient to put a minute area on their finger and to rub it in thoroughly and then to pop their appliance on top. So they need to rub it in until it's invisible and then put the skin barrier on. That will soothe it and help repair it a little bit until they can get to see their stoma nurse. What cream was that again? Pseudo cream. Okay. It's a nappy rash cream actually. Okay. So we just want it on super thin so it can't be seen and it doesn't affect the adhesion. I want to go back a little bit now because you did mention two different kinds of output, uh, one being fecal and the other being urinary. Tell me about the difference and what we should be aware of. So people with an ileal conduit, when they have no bladder and they have a urine infection, they can't provide an MSU because the urine is constantly draining out of the ileal conduit. So for the, if you ever suspect they have a urinary infection, the best way to take a sample is from a fresh bag the patient has applied or to put the pot under their stoma and collect it directly from their stoma. So people that have an ileal conduit, their urine, we would expect to see a little bit of mucus in it. But if people people's urine becomes cloudy and offensive, then there's obviously a, a chance to have a urinary infection. They're not going to get the symptoms of burning and stinging when they pass urine. They're not going to recognize it early. They often recognize it quite late. Obviously, then it can cause a serious infection and end up in hospital with sepsis, which happens sometimes. So early recognition of a urinary infection is really important. And when people have an ileal conduit, um, we ask them if they report any flu-like symptoms, even if they're vomiting or they're generally unwell, to always check their urine as part of their screening as to what's going on with them. All right, we can do all that, uh, Julia. Now, what else do we have to worry about? We've looked at the stoma, what's coming out the stoma. Uh, we've looked at the skin. What else should the GP now put our attention to? Well, sometimes people develop parastomal hernias. More commonly in people over 70, parastomal her hernias are almost inevitable because the stoma itself is brought out through the rectus muscle. So we do end up with hernias commonly in older people because they're muscles are weaker compared to younger people who are generally fitter. But parastomal hernias are really annoying for the person. They mean that their bag is less discreet because it stack sticks out more. So aesthetically, it's not very nice to have. It means their bowel pattern becomes disrupted. They can develop tenderness and a drawing sensation in that hernia. For others, it's hardly noticeable. But as they progress, in older people, it's challenging because these people may not be suitable for surgical repair. 
even in surgical repair, they can recur again. So we do a lot of work with people wearing an encouragement to wear support garments and to strengthen their abdominal muscles to try and do what we can to prevent a parastomal hernia. There is not a lot of literature around, this, the, um, around interventions to prevent um, parastomal hernia, but a lot of the information is around cessation of smoking, weight loss, just supporting the area really, especially through exercise and things and constipation, that was it, prevention of constipation. So yeah, just around care around the abdominal area to help prevent a hernia as much as possible. But obviously educating our patients is important around them. So some people might come to you for a, a referral to see their surgeon. Does this also mean that uh, lifting weight is an issue for people with stoma? Yes, it does. And over the years, what I've noticed is that when people get fit and well again after their surgery, they feel like they're invincible and they go back to doing things they were doing before. So my advice to people now is to actually avoid moving furniture, things that it cause you to close your throat when you're pushing something or pulling something heavy or carrying something to break up your washing loads, break up your shopping between your hands rather than carry it in one load um, and to treat yourself always like you have a bad back. And then people understand what that means um, and to be very cautious. So I, I tend to be much more um, firm and direct around my advice around hernias now, because when people get them, they get really upset and disappointed. And of course, they are either faced with a bulge permanently or surgery that really sometimes makes the stoma even more difficult to manage because of the incision close by. This is really important now because you're talking about things that affect day-to-day -day living. And, and there are many, I suspect, activities that we should really be aware of. Can you just take us through, um, if you like, the issues of living with the stoma that the patient has to face and the kind of psychosocial challenges they may have? Yes. So generally, there are adjustments that are made in the early days around just self-care and general routine. Um, once people, as the months go on, they um, adjust in their lives and we want to get people to encouraged to go back to their normal activities they were doing before. Often people will come and say, oh, I haven't gone to swimming because they said I couldn't go in the water. Well, there's no reason why people can't do that. So our job is to facilitate this well-being and for them to be able to go and be an active member of the community just as they were before, whether that's in their job, their social life, all aspects and their, with their partners too. Um, so we need to help people see how they can do that. And that's really important so that people don't become psychologically distressed about this even more so than it is um, so conversations and support are important for people that have cancer they can often access psychology support quite well other people not so easily but we encourage people to get support where they need it and we will provide quite a lot of that support in terms of counseling and support but if it gets beyond the boundaries and scope of our practice we will certainly encourage people to be seeing their GP around some psychological support because we want to help people return to their normal activities that brought them joy and and help them live their life themselves. Well, I'm actually very glad that you touch all aspects of the person's life in terms of work, uh, social life and intimacy with their partners, because that may not be particularly the letter as uh, something we would normally have a conversation about, nor are we necessarily able to inform them how to go about it. How would you deal with a conversation like this? Um, so we do have written information around intimacy. We talk about it with the patient preoperatively. For people having a cystectomy where they have their bladder removed and have an ileal conduit, they will be impotent. So we address that in the preoperative 
um, interview. They've generally spoken with their surgeon about it and then we do as well. So that's for the cystectomy. For people having a permanent colostomy, an abdominoperineal resection, where they have their rectum and anus removed, this for women, this will change the vagina and the direction of things and they may need some help and support around that. If they've had radiotherapy, they would already have been talked to about using dilators. But later on, of course, they can be fearful and worried about intimacy with their partner. So I guess that the message is it's more than the bag flapping around that people worry about. That is one aspect of having the physical bag on the outside of their body. Um, and we have a lady in our support group who makes garments to go over the top for that reason and for other reasons, too. She designs stuff. So there are things people can access, but it's also the other parts around intimacy. Um, so I talk to people when they come back to clinic. We also encourage them to go to our support group where we have conversations around that and where people can talk to other people that really understand what this is, what this is like. The other thing you've just made me realise is how inadequate I am as a GP to be able to say to a patient, you're now ready to go back to swim and you're now ready to go back and have a normal work life. I guess I, I just don't have enough experience with that. And clearly... We now look at, if you like, the healthcare team surrounding the patient. Talk to us about what, who constitutes the healthcare team, what are their roles, so that GPs will understand, if you like, when we refer or if somebody is involved in the care of that patient, they have a particular domain that they are very, if you like, well uh, able to care for and how we should not refer inappropriately to different people. So maybe you can teach us how we can use our team better. So when, when you mean your team, do you mean at the practice? No, I mean with the all, beyond the, the yeah. allied health team, the whole yeah. support team. I think it's really difficult because I'm based in an acute care hospital. So it's hard for me to see what people can access around that. But in hospital, we, we, we work with dietitian, physio, OT, myself, um, the surgeons, a psychology, a broad team of people. When people go home, the stomach therapy nurse manages quite a lot of these things. We tend to talk to the patient about resuming different activities. One of the key recommendations for resuming physical activities such as swimming or exercise is we're now recommending people see an exercise physiologist. They're much better at pinpointing direct specific individualized plans for people with some safety around their abdominal wall and helping them get back into things and we're finding that's really really good for the younger people and the older people just being able to get back into something gently without a general plan or a general class they need really specific guidance so they feel confident they can then progress to the next stage but yeah generally stonewall therapy nurses we do a lot of help with helping people get back to work all of those aspects and one question you can ask people is can you see your stoma nurse and is it easy to see them or have you seen them lately? You know, make contact with them. Um, there are, I don't know how many hundred, quite a few of us in Australia. And on our website, you can do a find a stoma therapy nurse. So you can actually go in and search for someone to communicate with. And the email is there too. So if ever you're unsure, we can be emailed as well as called. So Julia, one of the difficult things now, of course, is that GPs will need to help the patients get supplies. How do we do that? Well, in New South Wales and across Australia, we help patients access the Stoma Appliance Scheme that is federally funded um, by the Ministry of Health, and that is available for everybody. We do it while they're in hospital. They sign a form to join an association that distribute the supplies. 
they charge $60 for a pensioner and $70 for people who are not on a pension and $15 a month postage. There are two in New South Wales and we, we do the forms for that and Medicare forms. Um, and the patients have a very good supply. We are probably the one, one of the most luckiest places in the world for what people can access. For example, someone wearing a, a, having an ileostomy can access 30 drainable bags a month. The usual routine we would encourage was not changing it every day. It's not real good on for your skin care. So we usually say change your bag every second day and maybe order every six weeks, but they can't access them anywhere else. They can't buy them. They can't get them at the chemist. So they need to make sure that they're educated, which is what we do around their ordering. Now, for some patients, the standard order is not enough. They may have a stoma and a fistula, for example, or they may have issues that mean they have to change their bag more often. They may be having chemotherapy. There may be circumstances where they need an additional supply. So we can fill out an additional supply form um, for the stoma appliance scheme, which is on the Department of Health website. And GPs can fill these out too with the patient. Um, it's ideal if they see us because sometimes people ask for more bags when that is not going to be the solution. They're asking for more bags because they're having problems. They're having problems with their stoma. They haven't seen a stoma nurse. And with some support around their product, we can actually maybe upgrade or change what they're wearing and actually improve their life by doing that rather than giving them more bags, which just takes more time in their day to change it. So it's not always a solution. But if there are circumstances where we need to increase the supply, then we fill out one of these forms and they can be done once every six months and renewed as, as needed. What a wonderful thing to know, because it just really means that in my conversation, my first conversation with my patient, I will tell them that to ensure adequate supply, uh, supply, in fact, uh, they actually need to make contact with a stomal therapy nurse. And that would be the primary, if you like, contact at the first visit to the GP to a stomal therapy nurse. I think it works very well. Yes, it's excellent. We're very fortunate indeed. No. Please tell us quite clearly, if you like, the kind of role you have uh, with the patient so we know that we can trust that those aspects would be looked after. So in my service, I see people sometimes even before they've come to surgery through their radiotherapy if they have bowel cancer. Then I'll see them in pre-admission and explain to them about what having a stoma means for them. And I will mark the place on their abdomen where the stoma will go. This, of course, is in the case of elective surgery. Then they have the operation. And during their stay, I will see them every day through their stay to see how they're doing with things. And sometimes it's not physical contact. We're not actually doing and changing their bag if everything's OK and they're starting to manage. Sometimes I will go, go in and have the conversations around going home. How do you think this is going to work at home? How are you going to organize yourself? Have you talked to your partner? Has your partner been in? And I try and make contact with the partner while the person's in hospital. So at visiting, I generally pop out and just try and catch up with partners as families. Because feedback to me is partners and families actually do it quite tough as well when they're supporting someone with a stoma because they don't know how to support them. Once the patient's near home, they go home. I have a clinic they come back to two weeks afterwards. And the relationship is like when and needed. So I encourage them to call me if they're having any problems. I don't want to find out they're having a problem by the fact they're in emergency. So I generally will say, can you please make contact with me? You can phone me, you can, con you can email me, you can um, text me. And if people ring me with a problem, I'll say, can you text me a picture? And they're, oh, I've took a picture. And they send me a picture. So quite often we can do a lot of assessments without even having to do a face-to-face. -face. Um, if I need a physical assessment, I'll ask them to come in. 
But the other part of my care that I really feel strongly around is when people go home, we encourage them to come to our ostomy information group. We call it an information group, not a support group, because I think there's a certain amount of um, thoughts around support groups and what they might look like. So if we call it an information group, people usually come to that and um, they come and we have an education session. So we provide ongoing education in terms of hernia prevention, how to intimacy. We've had an exercise physiologist. We've had a dietitian. We've had someone come and talk about all sorts of different topics. And then the last hour, it's a social visit where people will catch up and talk together. And this is where we connect people. We get new people with a colostomy to talk to people that have had a colostomy 20 years and they network, if you like. And that is really invaluable part of coming to the group. So for me, that is part of my extended care is that group. I go to that group, I facilitate that group with a colleague, and it's a big part of keeping people out of a clinic setting when they need social adjustment and um, psychosocial support that they get from other people who know exactly what that feels like. That's a very important and comprehensive service. Um, I, I just feel a whole lot safer now that there's uh, wonderful people like yourselves behind us. Thank you, David. Can I just add as well that there are people that use a lot of online Facebook pages now as well. That is really a growing field that we haven't investigated ourselves as stoma nurses, but generally people do go online and communicate. So for some people, they do tend to um, connect in that way as well. Now, Julia, thank you for telling us about um, what you do and what stomal therapy nurses do, and also for helping me think about my patient when they first present with the stoma and what to look for. Um, I just wonder if there might be some things I might have missed in this interview so far. Sometimes people come with issues such as bleeding from their stoma. Mm -hmm. And if they call me about their bleeding, I will say to them, is it a little bit on the cloth when you clean your stoma? Mm -hmm. Because for somebody with a new stoma, that's perfectly normal, but that could obviously be very frightening. Then I say to them, "Is it? can you see where it's bleeding from? Is it on the edge of your stoma? For example, it might be a little granuloma. But then they, if they say to me, I have half a bag of blood in my stoma bag, I will say, please, can you go to the hospital? <laughs> so generally, that's the, that's the boundary I draw. Once they say half a bag, I say, you need to come to hospital. Um, and we need to have a closer look at what's happening. Um, so bleeding from the stoma and the surrounding area is normal. And another thing that we see are people with a prolapse. So if people have a prolapse stoma, the first thing I do is reassure them that if the stoma is functioning and they feel well, they're not vomiting or in pain, that it's, it's not an acute emergency. As long as their bag fits okay, they can come up to see me or the surgical team and we will try and reduce that prolapse and pop it back in. For some people, they are taught to do that themselves if they have recurring prolapses. But a, a prolapse is frightening for the person and it can be a little bit difficult to get back in if the patient, sometimes we can talk them through it on the phone, but if we can't get it back in, we'll get them to come up here. But just sometimes a bit of reassurance around the urgency of that, that when they're ready, you know, to come up and bring a bag, but it's not an ambulance type affair. It's more of a come up and we'll have a look at it um, and help them with that. Thank you for telling me about the bleeding and, <laughs> and, and the prolapse. So what would be your final messages to our GP listeners? I think the biggest message I have, there's so much information to share and I haven't, I feel really, I haven't really touched enough. I would really say, please communicate with us. We really want to hear from you. If you have someone with you and you're not sure, please use the Find a Stoma Nurse and call us or message us and open the communication lines. 
there is a big disconnect between the acute care and the community care but our role extends beyond the hospital walls and people's lives are not just for that part of their admission and their surgery we really need to help them live full lives and I think that's important so we can really reduce the stigma attached to having a stoma as well there are people living brilliant lives doing amazing things and we see a lot of people with problems and we don't see the people um, that are going out there and really living life to the full and we want to show people that they can all do that so I think by working together and communicating openly um, between each other that we can help do that for our patients. I think you've left me with a very important message. I think that if my patient was not living his or her life to the full I think we should really get as much care and knowledge and information as possible to the patient. And I can see a huge role in this for the stomal therapy nurse. Yes, thank you, David. And um, I think sometimes, like I say to my patients, if you're not sure who can help you with this, ring us. You know, I might say, see your GP. I might say, see your surgeon. Or I might say, let's see a psychologist or let's get you involved in this, or how about you try and go back to swimming? You said you're a bit fearful, but how can we help you with some steps to do that? So I say, sometimes we're like the funnel. Ask us what you need, and we'll help direct you as where you need to get that support so that you can make the changes you want to make and improve your life and live, live the best you can. This has been a very informative session for me, and I thank you for your time, Julia. Thanks so much, David. I've really enjoyed it. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.